Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the, the book of Psalms, Psalm 16. I'll take the entire psalm, but I'll let us know my intention in just a bit. Hear the perfect word of God. A victim of David, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for other gods will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood. Nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he's at my right hand, I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would have mercy upon me, that you would guide me, thou, my great Jehovah, and that the words of my lips, the meditation of my heart, would be pleasing, acceptable to you, that the words of this sermon would be true according to your word, O God, and for all of us, that we would have the requisite eyes to see you, Lord Jesus Christ, and ears to hear you and a heart to love you. Um, Lord, may I preach Christ, and may we all receive him. Uh, to your glory, Lord God, in our own edification, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I I mentioned this morning, at least I think I did, um, I'm not getting a lot of sleep lately. We have grandkids over, and so I have a little bed buddy that comes in my bed about 1 o'clock, and he is the worst little bed buddy in the world. And so there's a reason why you have kids when you're 20 and 30 and not pushing 60. Um, So I think I said this morning we we took... um, my morning series has been in the book of Acts, and then I was away for a week, and then I took one week last Sunday and did a topical, both in the morning and the evening. We looked at the, the Beatitudes. Just for me, pastorally, I think there's some things going on in the church, and plus, it's Beatitudes can be very encouraging, so we did a, a, a break. And I think the last time we were in the evening series, which itself is somewhat of an to- exegetical topical series, uh, was maybe um, May 9th. And the last, we've been in the Psalms, and we're looking for Christ in the Psalms. That's our particular focus. And the last Psalm that we were in was Psalm 109, in verse 4. It was an imprecatory, imprecatory portion to, um, to, to the reference there, which, which is a particular kind of a prayer. But we unpacked it thematically and looked at the business of Jesus praying, particularly as we see the counterpart of him praying a number of times on the cross, in my interest last time, just because I was there personally, was on the mercy of our God, the forgiveness of our God. 
The Bible says, God says in Luke chapter 6, he's kind and gracious to evil and ungrateful people. That's us. Um, and so he says, like, we should be imitators of him. And so being merciful to, to someone is not giving them what they deserve. That's justice. Being merciful is, is being kind and, and benevolent to someone that's guilty, a guilty sinner. And so Christ is, is merciful to guilty sinners. And he prays for forgiveness on the cross, which was my main consideration, which to me is, is astounding. So we, we spent some time looking at Christ as the sympathetic sacrifice and sacrificer. And he is the one, Christ is the one. I said it as a Roman Catholic, we said it every Sunday as the church of my youth. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I never knew that was from the book of John, with John the Baptist, Christ's cousin, looking at Jesus until I read the Bible for the first time when I was 26. I said, wow, this is about Jesus. Um, so Christ is the one that procures our forgiveness with God. He receives the justice. We receive the mercy. Does that make sense? That's love. That's God's love. Um, we, we get something that we don't deserve. We get what Christ has procured for us. So tonight, we're back in the Psalms. I'm not walking chronologically. I'm kind of hopscotching thematically of trying to stay logically consistent as we're looking at Christ in the Psalms. We're looking at his, and I'll just reference it, his estate of humiliation, and then logically it, it, it enters into his estate of exaltation, which was, begins with his resurrection from the dead. So I'm trying to be logically consistent in kind of addressing things thematically, but we're at Psalm 16. My particular focus, if you look at Psalm 16, is actually 16, what, 10? And then the second part, which, I mean, if you want to be technical, it's 10, 16, 10b. <laughs> so you'll not abandon my soul to Sheol. So David, the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that death for David will not be the end of David. He knows that he himself will not be overcome. Death will not have victory over David because David has forward-looking faith in the Messiah, which is promised to come through King David. King David knows, because God has told it to him, that he will establish his kingdom with him, but it will be, be through one that comes through the loins of King David. And it's not, it's not Solomon. And we know that Jesus Christ is both David's son, that he comes from David physically, the, the humanity of Christ, David is Christ's physical progenitor, um, comes in the line, but he's also David's Lord. And so um, we've been looking at that. T tonight, I want to look at what he says. After the reason he doesn't believe that he uh, will be abandoned to the grave is because his Holy One, the Messiah, uh, will not be abandoned to the grave, that Christ will not even suffer decay even though he was buried for three days. So we're going to look at verse 10 mainly. I'm going to throw in there, maybe I could expand the focus. Look at verses, uh, what, 8 through 11. I have set the Lord continually before me because he's at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and rejoices. The Puritans write a lot on contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs writes a beautiful book on contentment. In one way to have joy in this life, even if you're three-quarters Irish like me, and you tend to being melancholy, which I think is a sin, it's my sin, which means you tend to be overly sad, inordinately sad. And I see the sadness in life. It's part of my, my being. And, uh, but 
one way to overcome that is to focus less on self, less on the fallenness of the world, and to fixate and focus more on Christ. If we would think more on Christ, uh, we would be more greatly encouraged. Um, Christ lives, and he lives for us. He's preparing a place for us even now. The end of Christ's life did not terminate in death. Yes, he died on the cross, but three days later he rose again, which this passage is teaching, and we're going to see that as we come to the New Testament counterpart. So the, the Christian, um, Charles Spurgeon said the Christian alone in all the earth, we should be the most happiest people on the planet. I have a dear sis, two dear sisters, one older, one younger, both unbelievers, and one kind of a Buddhist. In the Buddhist one, she's the happiest, most very optimistic, outlooking person, and it puts me to shame because I'm the other way. But the more that we could look at this, I've set the Lord continually before me. He's at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My soul rejoices. My flesh will also dwell securely. The more that we look at God, who is infinitely perfect, he's immutable, he doesn't change, he's not movable. God alone, the creator alone, who is our sustainer and our redeemer, he alone is the one who is able to give us contentment. Everything else, even if you have the best wife on the planet, and I have the best wife on the planet, even if you have the best kids on the planet, any of those things, Everything about the creature always has a taste of bitterness. It never fully satisfies. Even if you have the best wife or the best husband, we're going away. The best mom, the best dad, we're going to go away. But the creature, the creator is immovable. And he's perfect. And so David, living in this present evil age, says, I can have joy in this world because I look at my God who is the living and the true God. And so we would do, I know it's a very basic thing. We believe in Christ. And Christians who believe in Christ, believe in Christ. But sometimes we live like we don't believe in Christ. Do you know what I mean? Is he really alive? Is he really for me? Does he really pray? Well, when I die, will I really live? Um, What does the fellow pray? Our brother brought it out in Sunday school. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. So, to refresh our memories, what we're doing in this series, and I've only got a couple of more um, sermons to go. I, my practice is an Old Testament exegetical series. Take a brief break with a topical, which is what we're in. I'll let you know. Hopefully I don't whittle the church down to just my wife and a house cat. But my intention is to preach through the book of Numbers. It'll, I'll make it really exciting, I promise. So I, I think there are 35 or 36 chapters it really is an exciting book. You might not think, and maybe I'll skip over a couple chronologies, but that's my game plan. So unless, of course, things go south. But the, so that's what we're... What my practice has been by looking at Christ in the Psalms, we see here verse 10, I, I want to find a statement about Christ in the Psalms, and then I want to find a direct statement in the New Testament, not just an allusion to or the inference. I want something direct. Now, I'm not saying that by good and necessary consequence that that thing would not be true. Of course, the Bible teaches by express statements, direct statements, and then by logical deduction, which is why we believe in the Trinity. The Father is called God, divine names, attributes, works, divine worship, attributed to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Therefore, logically, these three are one God. That's inference, logical deduction, 
But I want something which is an express statement. And so what we, we find is, and I'll quote this later, the Apostle Peter quotes Psalm 1610 and says, this is Jesus. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the very same Holy Spirit, quotes Psalm 1610 and says, this one who won't suffer decay is Jesus. Therefore, for us, ultimately, believers in Jesus, the grave will not have victory over us. So that's, that's, that's the game plan. We'll see how far we can get in looking at this. Now, when I mention we're looking at Christ in the Psalms, I think you could differ with me. Maybe you're right. I think Luther was a little bit more Christocentric in looking at Christ in the Old Testament than, say, um, Calvin. Calvin, in some ways, was more theocentric, and he was less willing to say, there's Christ, there's Christ. I tend to be more finding Christ in a lot more places in the Old Testament. However, the reason I've chosen the direct method of finding an express statement in the New Testament is this. It is possible... Is it possible to misuse the Bible? Is it possible to say that the Bible says something, but it doesn't really say it? Um, I don't often use often read the ancient church fathers. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite writers, died in 1900s. He says, sometimes when you read the ancient church fathers, you're breathing an atmosphere that you know is not the Bible. A lot of them that were steeped in Platonic thought, those kind of things, pagan philosophy. I'm not picking on them. I, I couldn't carry their bags. But sometimes their interpretation, their interpretive method is really fanciful. Even Augustine, sometimes you read Augustine, you're like, I, I don't know Augustine. The, the best ancient church father for me that I resonate the most with is Chrysostom. He exegetes things the way that I understand they should be. But I, my point with that is this. There's a fellow named Origen. You may have heard of him. And he would do things like this. In the Old Testament, if he saw something, a passage would mention wood, he would say, oh, that's the cross of Christ. Or if it had the color red, he would say, that's the blood of Christ on the cross. That's really hyper-symbolic, overly allegorizing or symbolizing things, and you're trying to find Christ where he's not expressly mentioned. Does that make sense? You can say orthodox right things, scriptural things, there's the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, from a passage that may not teach that. I actually listened to a minister one time that preached a fabulously orthodox passage uh, uh, sermon on Christ. And I went to him, I said, wow, um, I can't believe you got Christ out of that passage. And he's like, yeah. There's a thing called exegesis and eisegesis. Exo, the ex, the prefix, and iso. Ex is Greek, out of. You're drawing out of the text. So I want to draw out of Psalm 1610. This is Jesus. Iso Jesus is when I make the text say something it doesn't say. I just heard a man preach a wonderful Mother's Day sermon, not in an OP church. Not that they take away your stripes in an OP church if you preach a Mother's Day. But he preached a Mother's Day sermon from John 19 with Jesus on the cross where he says, woman, behold your, your son. And then man, behold your mother. I choked back a couple tears. It was a very nice sermon but I'm not sure it was the right text. So if you would permit me, I want to read what God the Holy Spirit through Peter says about Psalm 16, and then we'll do the same for Paul. Acts 2, verse 22. This is Peter. 
men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, so we know who we're talking about, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, now, now listen to this. There's the decree of will of God, which God decrees, which he keeps to himself from all eternity. And then there's the revealed will of God, which we are obligated to believe in, obey, which is the Bible. This man, delivered Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned it. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. You broke the sixth commandment. But God, God raised him up. We're looking at resurrection. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now we're going to quote Psalm 16. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he's at my right hand, so I'll not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, because you'll not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have known 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 to me the ways of life, You will make me full of gladness with your presence. It's Christ. So when someone says, how do you get Christ out of that? Then the Old Testament contains the New Testament in seed form. This is St. Augustine. And then the the, the New Testament is the Old Testament in full bloom. So if we have the Old, the New Testament says that passage there is Jesus. It's Jesus. And it teaches us the progressive nature of Scripture. That Christ is, The Bible is about Christ, the coming of Christ from Genesis 3.15 to the end of the Bible. But it it gets progressively clearer. I was not raised reading the Bible. And my my first mentor said, read Jack. Back home I'm called Jack. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, of course, when the minister told me to start with the New Testament, I went immediately to Genesis. And by the time I hit Leviticus, I was completely confused. But if if I had known the New Testament particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, what, what New Testament book shows with utter clarity, say, the Old Testament book of Leviticus? What New Testament book shows with clarity the truth of Leviticus? Hebrews. Hebrews says here, Jesus is the priesthood, Jesus is the, the temple furniture, he's the tabernacle, he's the sacrifices, he's the feasts, he's the scapegoat, He is the Lamb of God. It's Jesus, the book of Hebrews. So scripture is progressive in nature. The main subject of Christ is that God will not leave his people to suffer in the estate of sin and misery and die and go to hell. He's going to send his redeemer. The redeemer will die for our sins. He'll rise for our justification. And that gets progressively clearer. And so we learn that about scripture. And then in one statement is sufficient, but the Holy Spirit inspires Paul. In Acts chapter 13, verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, Christ, they took him down from the cross, they laid him in the tomb. So humiliation of Christ precedes his exaltation. Death precedes his resurrection, obviously. Now everyone loves to hear about resurrection from the dead, but no one wants to hear what comes before resurrection from the dead, which is being the dead. Um, But that's what precedes humiliation, exaltation. God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who came up from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones which are now his witnesses. And what's the Greek word for witness? We've said it a bunch of times. What is it? 
We're going to witness. Martyreo is the Greek. What kind of word do we get martyreo from? Martyr. Martyr. We live in an antichrist world. We live in a world that is antithetical. I mean, it is our Father's world, but the worldling hates Christ. And so when we as lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ stand up and say, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He died. He rose again. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's coming again. And I believe this. And if you believe it, you're going to see him. If you don't believe him, you'll see him not as Savior, but as judge. Beloved, the worldling, this is nothing new. The worldling does not like this. And, um, and, we, we, and therefore we witness. We preach to you the good news of the promise made to our fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children. That's the covenantal aspect, which is one of the reasons why I'm Presbyterian. To our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son today, I've begotten you, Psalm 2. And then in the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, to, 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 to he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another Psalm, Psalm 16, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. And just so people don't misunderstand, he says, I'm not talking about David. For David... After he served the purposes of God in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was laid among his fathers, and he underwent decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him, Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Listen, through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you cannot be freed through the the law of Moses. I didn't bring this out in the morning sermon because I ran out of time. Peter says to the Judaizers, you're trying to lay a burden on these Gentiles for salvation more than believe in Christ. Be circumcised, obey the law of Moses. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, why are you laying this burden? We can't even do it. We can't do it. And, and here we see, through, through which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. John Bunyan says the law doesn't say, the Bible teaches the law doesn't say, read Romans chapter 7. But he has this beautiful little poem. He says the law only bids you to run where the gospel, and it can only condemn, where the gospel gives you wings to fly. So you, you can't be freed from the law by the law. That's the realm of the gospel. When we see the New Testament interpreting and confirming the Old Testament There's another thing about Scripture, not just the progressive nature of Scripture, but it's something that is particularly a Protestant understanding of the Scripture. Um, It's part of one of the the excellencies of Scripture. It's self-authenticating. The Bible doesn't need me or anyone or another council of human beings to come along and say the Word of God is the Word of God. We, with the Holy Spirit in us, we recognize that the Word of God is, is the word of God because he says it is. And not only is the word of God self-authenticating, God proves that it is the Bible. It's it's self-interpreting, that the Bible interprets the Bible. So where the Bible speaks on one subject, say resurrection, and say in reference to Christ, and say it's less clear, which is the Old Testament, is less clear. The New Testament comes along in, in a related passage in a more clear fashion that gives us the ability to understand that. So we read through the less clear portions of Scripture with related, more clear 
New Testament text. Does that make sense? That's how we read our Bible. It's one of the things I like, I love about the Reformed faith. They show the unity of, of the scripture. I mentioned as a Roman Catholic, behold the Lamb of God. Well, if I, if I knew Leviticus, which I didn't at the time, I would know exactly what's going on. Christ, if I knew Exodus chapter 11 and 12 and 13, Christ is the Passover lamb. That's what the Baptist is, John the Baptist is saying. And that's that unifying theme. And we, we see that in this particular psalm. Uh, um, I want to read something from our secondary standard, which is a summary of our primary. This is from the Confession of Faith. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. Therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's look at the truth of um, the resurrection. If we're going to back up and look at Christ's resurrection, the first general lesson we have here is this as it is that there is such a thing as the resurrection and i have to back up even from that i mentioned it before in order for someone to be resurrected from the dead they have to die um i'll be what will I, i'll be be 59 in a couple months here um i've been your minister for 22 years and I think I've officiated at 36 funerals how many funerals have you been to in your life sometimes you go to a funeral and you hear something like this death is natural but death isn't natural death has been added to the world because Adam sinned against God it's an aspect of the curse so God created Adam and told Adam, on the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely what? You shall surely die. So we, living post-Paul, fall only no death. So to us it is normative, but it, it was, it's not natural. It's an aspect of the fall. And when we come here, we're looking at a reversal of the curse of God. We're looking at life out of death. Um, so that's the basic lesson. There is such a thing as the resurrection from the dead. Now, there, there is a couple of statements in the scripture. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we what? We die. Have you ever heard anybody say that? My mom, who, who died uh, two years ago, she was the first person I ever watched breathe her last um, breath. She had a, a little, I don't know, a kitchen towel hung over one of the drawers. And it said, if I go to hell, I'll be too busy shaking hands with all my friends. Something like that. So when folks say things like that, eat, break, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, I would say this. It's a frivolous treatment of death. Have you ever heard... Have you ever heard the um, Have you ever heard the statement um, "Whistling by the graveyard"? You ever heard that statement? "Whistling by the graveyard" is you walk by the graveyard, you're terrified, so you whistle to pretend you're not terrified. 
When people say stuff like that, I'm going to be shaking hands with all my friends in hell and I don't care and I'm going to have a big time and I'll be bug food or something like that. That's whistling by the graveyard. They're not thinking about it. When you start to think about it, for you, like really think about it, for your wife, your, your, your husband, for your son, for your daughter, for your grandson, for your granddaughter, for your mom, for your dad, really think about it. It's a, it's a strange duck that's frivolous. Jesus here, the Bible here, is saying Christ is the curse remover. He's the only curse remover. He's the only one that's going to take away the sting of death because he satisfies the law of God. So Christ, everything Jesus does is as a, as a public person, as our mediator. He dies for us. He rises for us. He prays. Everything he does, subsequent his incarnation, which he, he'll, have the, he'll have a glorified, he has a glorified human body. He has two natures now forever. Prior to his incarnation, he had one nature, divine. Subsequent his incarnation, he has two natures in one person forever. How does that work? I don't know, but it's true. So he, he, he comes for us. He dies for us. He lives a righteous life. I referenced this morning the English fellow that says the imputation of Christ's righteousness is a piece of legal fiction. He says Jesus will pay for your sins, but you acquire your righteousness. They deny the, 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 the passive obedience of Jesus. They affirm the active, the, the active obedience of Jesus, but not the passive. Christ takes the demerit, the curse for our sin, but he merits he keeps the law. The guy's wrong. He's a genius, but he's wrong. Christ keeps the law for us. He dies to pay for the law for us, and he rises for us. And so the reason that we as Christians mourn, but we don't mourn as those without any hope, is because Christ rose from the dead for us. Everything as a believer is for us, for me. And so we come here. Will we die? We will die, unless we're the last generation. I know when I was a dispensationalist, we thought, you know, that they've got the red heifer in the back room and they've got the, the, the olive things and the, the Levites and they're getting ready to build the third temple. And why? Because we all wanted to be raptured out. We, want, we didn't want to die. And I'm not picking on my dispensationalist brothers. John MacArthur, who I love, I couldn't hold his bags. It is a dispensationalist. He's a genius. But the reason I, I love dispensationalism is because I'm not going to have to die. Of course, of course how do I know I'm going to be the last generation? I don't, but we're all banking on it. <laughs> right? No one wants to die. No one wants to watch people they love die because it's a horrible thing. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, generally you don't die looking great with great and looking great and feeling. You, you die how? You groan. You moan. It's a painful thing to watch folks die. And so we come here as the, there is a truth of resurrection so the person who says, I'm an atheist, and I don't believe in resurrection, I feel bad for you. I feel really, really bad for you. I have family who are not Christians, and my, mother's, my, my wife's uh, father said to me, okay, John, here's the deal. You call on your Jesus, you tell him to get off the throne, come down, and, um, and do a miracle in front of me, and then I'll believe him. And the, 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 the suffix G in Hindi means respect. I say, Papa G, it doesn't work like that. He's Lord. He's not bellhop. You don't say, you, th th there is no like, you come down, I'll make your whole day by believing in you. Oh, no, 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 no. You have this mixed up. He's going to make your whole day 
if you get on your face and say, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. It, he, he, he's not jumping up off the throne. Because even if we saw him raise someone from the dead, does watching someone raise from the dead, is that the same thing as saving faith? Oh, no. Lots of people see, saw him say to Lazarus, who was four days in the grave, come forth. And what did they do? Some believed, but what did the other people do? They went away to the Pharisees and said, we have to kill this guy. They saw him do it. Gobs of people saw him. So seeing a miracle is not the same thing as saving faith. God the Holy Spirit gives saving faith. But he, there is a res- resurrection. And the only people that truly believe have been given the gift of faith. I, am, I wasn't always a Calvinist. I was a Roman Catholic. And then I became whatever I was. I didn't know anything. I knew Jesus was Lord. I didn't know what an Arminian was. I didn't know what a Calvinist was. I didn't know any of it. I didn't know any of that. But when, when we come here, we, we are seeing an expression of the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Christ. He, he has all power over life and death. And so when we speak of sovereignty of God, it's just not... Sometimes young Calvinists, they think sovereignty is just let's beat up on our Arminian friends and show them how smart we are. Um, that's kind of a sad thing. It's almost oxymoron. It is oxymoronic. Boy, I'm a Calvinist. Everything's been given to me. I'm smarter than you are. <laughs> it's so silly. Okay, so we have the truth of resurrection and we receive it by faith. Christ, as I mentioned, has two natures. We're actually seeing both natures are manifested in his resurrection. Sometimes people will say things like this. Okay, I won't believe in Jesus. When I die, I'll take it up with God and we'll work things out. My dad had a friend that talked like that. He was an Italian. He was a real tough guy. And I'll, I'll talk it out with God. And I'm like, okay, you're a tough guy here in the world and everybody's afraid of you. You're not going to get to heaven and talk like <laughs> Rico Rizzo. Like, you know, I'm, we're going to make a deal. This is how it's going to go. You're going to be on your face. You're going to be trembling. You're going to get on your knees, and God is going to say, say that I am Lord, and then he's going to say, depart. That's how that goes. And, and, and when we, we look at here, the reason, the reason we need a Christ who's fully God and fully man, when Christ was on the cross, and he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What was he receiving? The wrath of God. He can't be a man because no man could, a mere man, because no mere man could live after he received the God. This is why both the JWs and the, and the, and the, and the Mormons, they're wrong respectively for various reasons. One, is the, one says he's the archangel Michael. That's what? Is it the Mormons? Or the JWs? And the other one says he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. No angel could receive the wrath of God for sins and live. So Christ in his resurrection, which is what this is teaching about, it, teaches and testifies to the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is fully God. It's known, and he's fully man. It's known as the hypostatic union. It's a, it's a mystery. Do we as Christians worship Jesus? Do we pray to him? Yes. Did people in the Bible worship Jesus? Doubting Thomas, when he stuck his finger in Jesus' side, he said, my Lord and my what? God. So the resurrection of Christ affirms the divinity of Christ, but also the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ affirms and testifies to the true humanity of Jesus. Jesus Christ has a real human body and a real human soul. He's a real human being. Why? Why? Jesus is going to taste death for us. 
Jesus is going to rise for us. In order for, for real human beings that have sinned against God to re- be redeemed before God, they, we have to have a real representative, a real human. A real human. I didn't read the Bible until I was 26. We, we, read, we, we read what was known as the St. Joseph's Missalette. So I didn't read the Bible. When I started reading the Bible at 26 years old, the thing that struck me was the compassion of Christ. That's his humanity. He is a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4. We're, 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 we're told to weep with those who weep and what? And mourn with those who mourn. Christ was a man of many sorrows. He tasted all of these things for us. When you say to me, Pastor, you don't know what I'm going through, maybe I don't. But I know the one that does. And so when we are approaching death for ourselves, we can look to this one, our sympathetic high priest. When we're approaching death with a loved one who's approaching death, and I, I, I don't know in my mind, which I think would be worse. Um, But we don't despair because we come to the one that did die for us. He took away the terrors of death for us and he proves it by his resurrection from the dead. So we see the two natures of Jesus Christ. Um, Also, when we consider the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, much as my father-in-law said, the miracle he wanted was he wanted Jesus to get off the throne and take a man with one leg and regrow the leg in front of him. But, beloved, the final miraculous proof that Jesus is the Christ is not regrowing a leg. Romans 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now this is the, this is the, the next text. Who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The final proof of attestation that Jesus is the Christ, he is our only hope in life and death, is his own resurrection from the dead. The Bible says this, that there is one that holds us in bondage and that we live in fear of death all the days of our life, and that one is the devil. I mentioned I came out of Catholicism and came to Christ, and then as a Protestant, I've been everywhere. And I've been in other churches where they did things like this. They would say things like this. I bind you, devil, in the name of Jesus. And I'm not picking on these folks. It's just illustrative. And I remember as a young Christian thinking, you can bind the devil? Like a human being? And of course, I was a young believer. And so the other believers in this church would say, oh yeah, you can, oh, yeah, you can do it. Thinking, boy, he's a slippery critter because he seems pretty busy. Beloved, I'm going to tell you this. I'm not picking on those folks. The one who has victory over the devil is not even the the mightiest Christian. It's Christ. Christ has victory over the devil. Christ breaks the power of the devil 
Christ takes away the fear of death. Christ takes us away from the dominion of the devil and we're transferred into the kingdom of the beloved, out of the, dark, the kingdom of death and darkness into the kingdom of light by Christ. Our brother this morning was teaching on assurance and we're talking about small faith, little faith. Beloved, it's not our faith. The, the assurance is, subjective, is the subjective experience that we believe, but we're not held by Christ by the strength of our subjective experience. Our faith could be tiny. We're held by a mighty Christ. We could be trembling, but we're held by a Christ that is the anchor of our soul. So Christ has victory over sin. Christ, by his resurrection, attests that he's paid it all. How do we know? How do we know that our sins have been paid for? Because Christ rose from the dead. How do we know the Bible's true? This is... I heard this the moment I became a born-again Christian. Oh, Jack, the Bible is filled with lots of mistakes, lots of mistakes, lots of contradictions. How do we know the Bible's true? God said, Messiah will come. He'll be born of David, a seed of David. He comes. He'll be born of a virgin. How many virgins give birth to a son? None except the Virgin Mary, overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Exactly. Where is he going to be born? In Bethlehem. Where is he going to die? On a cross outside of Jerusalem. And what will happen after he dies? Three days in the ground, he's going to rise again. There is no way. There is no way. Psalm 16, a thousand years before Christ rises from the dead, God through David says he's going to rise from the dead. You could read Hawkins, Dawkins, Schmockins, all of those guys all day long, and they're all smart. There is absolutely no way the word of God is not the word of God. Right? Are these guys smarter than me? Way smarter than me. But they're not smarter than God. And God says even the foolishness of God is smarter than the wisdom of men. And the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. Where, oh, where, oh man, where, oh debater is your wisdom? Meaning the worldly wise men, they're not going to heaven. They're too smart to go to heaven. And, 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 and R.C. Spall says it's not that they're too smart to go to heaven. They're too proud to go to heaven. They won't repent and believe what the Bible says. The Bible says Jesus rose from the dead. So, beloved, this is our hope. This is a... The resurrection from the dead is a... And I want to end with something, but I want to say this. I think I want to say this. I mentioned that I was converted... And have been to lots of different churches. The main things in the Bible should be the main things. There are secondary and tertiary things in the Bible. Um, okay. Um, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought. I, I, I'll, get, I'll regain it in one second. Okay, here it is. I, I'll pick baptism. And so I, I, baptism is an important thing, but the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think verses 16 and 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to do what? Preach the gospel. It means baptism is in the gospel. I'm not picking on baptism. I used to be a dunker, and now I'm a sprinkler or a pourer. And if, I, if there's enough water, I'll dunk you. Take you, you pick, as my Italian neighbor used to say. Take you, you pick. So I'll sprinkle you, dunk you, dunk you or pour. We, we think all three forms are legit. But we believe it should be to believers and believers' children. But when I was a Baptist, I didn't believe that. 
Do the Baptists and the, the Credo Baptists and the, and the, and the, and the um, Covenant Baptists who believe in the, the same gospel, are we both going to heaven? We're, we're both going to heaven. So is one's belief in how much water in particular subjects, is that a fundamental to the faith? Meaning, if you differ and you get it wrong, you don't go to heaven. Is it a fundamental? No. Church government, obviously I'm Presbyterian. I used to be a Congregationalist. Is that fundamental to the faith? Meaning, if you get it wrong on church government, you don't go to heaven. No. Resurrections are fundamental. The deity of Christ is fundamental. The humanity of Christ is fundamental. Christ dying on the cross for sins, fundamental. Resurrection, Jesus rose from the dead, fundamental. You don't believe Christ died for sins, you're not a Christian. You don't believe he rose from the dead, he stayed in the ground, you're not a go-to-heaven Christian. This, the, the, these are things that we don't argue with. So J.C. Ryle, I'll, he, he's an he's a Episcopalian Anglican, we differ on church polity. Oh, we maintain this. So there's a wrong ecumenicalism and there's a right one. And I, and I want to end with this. I said this creed my whole life. Now, listen for the resurrection. We believe, credo. And I, I want you to, in your own head, I want you to, if you agree with this, I want you to say, well, I believe that. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the seeing essence of the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and died, and the third day he rose again in fulfillment of Scripture. Do you believe that? He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He'll come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. Do you believe that? We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one Catholic and apostolic church, we affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come. Do you look forward to the resurrection from the dead and the life to come in Christ? Amen. What a blessed Lord we, we have. When, when we die as Christians, when our loved ones in Christ die as Christians, our soul goes immediately to be with Christ. We behold the beatific vision. Our bodies rest in the grave until the last day on the resurrection. Then our perfect glorified body will be given to us to be joined to our perfect glorified soul. And we will enjoy God in one another forever and ever and ever. And David says, and, and my lines have fallen to me in beautiful places. And, and my, my heritage is a joyous one. Beloved, you may have a hard life right now. Your lines in Christ have fallen to you in beautiful places. And your heritage, your future, is an infinitely joyous one. Amen? Amen. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.